as I look around, I see that there are a number of folks that are out this morning. I think there's been a lot of sickness. Uh, strangely enough, we don't seem to see a whole lot of it during the summer, but there is uh, a number of folks that are out sick. It's hit our home. Little Levi is running a little bit of a temperature, so Ruthie is at home with him and has certainly covered your prayers. Uh, but this morning, as we turn our attention to God's Word, we come to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3, and in a moment we'll be looking at the first 20 verses here in 2 Kings chapter 3 in a sermon that I've titled, A Servant to All. A Servant to All. 2 Kings 3, verses 1 through 20. So often when we think of missionaries, we think of those who venture off into a foreign land to bring the gospel to a different people group. Years ago, I remember meeting a group of missionaries, and when I asked them where they were serving, I remember being shocked when they said to me, they're serving right here in the United States. At the time, I remember thinking, they're either joking, or they don't understand what it means to be a missionary. The dictionary defines the word missionary as a person sent on a religious mission, especially one sent to promote Christianity in a foreign country. That's how the dictionary defines the word. Many have adopted that definition without fully considering what it suggests. A true missionary is someone who is sent on a mission, yes, sent on a mission to evangelize, sent on a mission to reach people with the gospel, but the reality of that is that it isn't limited to people being sent to a foreign land, but it's sent anywhere, anywhere you are, where you are on a mission to evangelize and to share the gospel, you are a missionary. You don't have to step foot on foreign soil in order to be a missionary. You as a believer are a missionary for Christ everywhere you go spreading the gospel. I think one of the reasons we like to think of missionaries as those who travel to foreign lands is because that makes us feel a little better and easier for not being called to leave the country. It becomes easy to adopt an apathetic mentality towards missions because we don't feel called to foreign missions, therefore we must not be called to missions at all. There you have it. My excuse for not witnessing and for not evangelizing evangelizing. God has called someone else to do it, is the mentality that we often adopt. But that's not the way it works, though, is it? God may not have called you to serve him on a foreign mission field, but God has still called you to be a missionary where he has you. What many people don't understand is that the missionary work looks different person to person. Many modern-day foreign missionaries have to enter countries offering some sort of skill, such as being a doctor or a nurse or an engineer or a teacher or a musician or any other host of, of different skills and, and, um, and career opportunities. But the point is that God has gifted each person uniquely, and God expects us to use those specific gifts and talents to... Bring the gospel to those that desperately need it. If that involves you going to a foreign country, then by all means, go and be a light. Be a light that is using those talents that God has gifted you with to bring the gospel to people in a different land. And if that involves you staring, staying exactly where you are, 
then use your God-given gifts where you are to be the light that God expects you to be to the people that he has placed around you. No matter how we look at it, God has called every single one of us as believers to be a servant to all, to be a missionary to all. We're to minister grace to the people that God has put in our lives. Many times we have uh, no say as to who it is that God puts in our lives, which can make witnessing difficult. When we're focused on what we stand to gain, witnessing is always going to be difficult. Witnessing, though, is about reaching people where they are. It is about making connections with people and showing them that you care enough about them to show them God's truth. When we understand the truth about witnessing and soul winning, soul winning and personal evangelism, we stop looking at people for where they come from or how they're dressed or how they speak or how much money they have or how young or how old they may be and how educated they are or any other factor other than what they are, which are souls in need of the Savior. Being a servant to all starts with us recognizing that we as believers are, first of all, God's instruments of grace and truth. We are delivering God's message to those who need it and allowing God to bring about the increase in how we present it. God just wants us to be faithful to him in his service and to use the opportunities that he presents us for his ultimate glory. So as human beings... As fathers, as parents, that starts with ministering to our families, ministering to our children, ministering to our, our husbands and our wives and our neighbors and our co-workers and all the people that we come in contact with throughout the day. All around us, there are people who need the Lord, and you may be the one that God has put in their life to point them to the Savior. So don't ever shortchange how the Lord can use you to minister to the people around you. Don't ever think that he hasn't called you to minister because he hasn't called you to go to the foreign mission field. Or don't ever leave it up to the next person that's going to come after you. Where God leads you, he will also equip you. Just be a willing vessel in the master's hands. Now what we've seen thus far as we've looked at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha is that things haven't always gone according to his plan. Elisha was called to leave his family, to leave the family business, to follow Elijah in a much less lucrative endeavor. In fact, Elisha would leave a life of financial stability to start a life of financial dependence upon God. He left his family behind to start a life of almost isolation where the people around him would be few and far between. He would encounter many people throughout his ministry, but the companions that he had were certainly scarce. He was constantly dealing with people he would not have otherwise dealt with had he stayed with his family. But God was using all of these changes in his life to work some really great and incredible wonders. God was, was stretching Elisha, much like he stretches us, to go beyond our comfort zone. And Elisha was experiencing what life was like, trusting in the Lord from day to day to provide what he needed moment by moment. There are many challenges, many unruly people that he had to deal with, but the Lord always proved himself faithful and took care of his servant. And as we look at this next incident in Elisha's life, we come here to 2 Kings chapter 3, and what we'll see is that this miracle seems to be more involved than the previous three. This is the, the fourth miracle in the ministry of Elisha. 
And even though God is, is going to bring several men before Elisha, who he doesn't necessarily care for, God will use him to be a blessing to them nonetheless. So as we look at our passage this morning, I want you to notice, first of all, just some basic background information. Sometimes it's good to understand the context, to understand what is happening here. So let's start by looking at the background information. Many times we truly cannot appreciate something until we first understand where it came from or what happened leading up to it. The same is true in appreciating the fourth miracle that we're going to see here in the life of Elisha. Not that we don't appreciate the working of God when we read about it, but our appreciation grows when we realize just how much God was doing leading up to this fourth miracle. Think of how much you appreciate the sun rising in the morning after a particularly difficult night. Think about it. The more desperate and the more urgent our need the clearer we see God's hand of deliverance and provision as he ministers to us. Have any of you ever had a sleepless night where something was weighing on your mind that just you couldn't fall asleep even if you wanted to? Any of you experienced something like that? Hope you've got two hands up. Right? I mean, we've all been there, and maybe not necessarily recently, but even if it's recently, we've all been there where we've experienced something, where something was weighing on our mind that we were just so fixated on it, even though we didn't want to be fixated on it, and we just wanted to be able to get some rest. Our bodies are tired. We're ready to just close our eyes and fall asleep, but we close our eyes, and we can't fall asleep. There have been plenty of times where I've done that. I've laid my head on the pillow, I've closed my eyes, and then I'll open them and I feel like I couldn't be wider awake than I am right now. And it's just the most frustrating thing because your body's tired, you're exhausted, you know that sleep is what you need and it just seems to elude you at every turn. And then, finally, you're able to, to fall asleep and it's almost a welcome sight to see the sun rising as you're being awakened by the rays of the sun hitting your eyelids. It's a welcome sight because you've known that at the very least you've been able to rest a little bit from the issues that were plaguing you the night before. But it's something that we appreciate so much. When the, the night is particularly dark to see the sunrise in the morning because it shows you that there is a new day, that even what was plaguing you yesterday, that too shall come to pass. And the sun rising is almost that reminder that something has come to pass. The more desperate and the more urgent that our needs are, I think the clearer we see God's hand of deliverance, the clearer we see God's hand of provision as he ministers to us. And it's not that God has ever left us alone when life is going good. But we don't focus on God's hand as much in the good times as we do when he delivers us out of the bad times. If we weren't so self-centered, we would pay attention to everything that God is doing in our lives, in the good and in the unfavorable. We would pay attention to everything that God is doing in our lives as well as in the lives of fellow believers. And we would be offering continual praise to God for his good hand upon all of us individually and collectively. And as we turn our attention here to 2 Kings 3, the scene that we've been looking at so far as we've been following the life of Elisha, it shifts to the land of Samaria, where we meet a wicked king by the name of Jehoram. And look at what we read in the first three verses here in 2 Kings chapter 3. It says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, 
began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. There are, are five realities of sin that are mentioned in these first three verses here in 2 Kings chapter 3. And I'd like to point them out to you. They're worth mentioning. First, we see that God sees all our sin. Verse 2 begins, it says, And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of the Lord. God sees all our sin. There is nothing that we can ever do that is ever hidden from the sight of the Lord. There are many things that we can do with no witnesses other than ourselves. But the truth is, there is no secret place that is hidden from the eyes of God. The reason why men love darkness rather than light is because his deeds are evil, the Bible tells us. And he knows that. He knows that his deeds are evil. And that's why man tries to do all of his evil deeds under the cover of darkness because he knows that if it's exposed, if it's seen, he's going to be called out for it and going to be blamed for it. So he tries to do everything where it's hidden from the eyes of everyone that may be watching. But God pulls the rug out from underneath all of us when he informs us in Proverbs 15, verse 3, which states, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Now, this can be a very scary thought, especially when we're engaging in what we refer to as secret sins. Is there any secret sin? There may be secret sin that is secret from everyone else around us, but there is no secret sin because God is telling us that whether or not people see he is shining a spotlight on all of it. No one else may be aware of what is done when we're in secret, when we're in private. But God sees every one of our sins. And again, it says there in verse 2, and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. Second, we see that God records all our sin. God records all our sin. Look again at verses 2 and 3. It says, and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. God not only saw all of, uh, of Jeroboam's sin, but he has recorded the sins of his parents. He has seen all the sins of Je Jehoram's sins as well, and all the sins going back to when the nation was first divided under, under Jeroboam. How easy it is for us to sin without giving it a second thought. Some of the sins we engage in have become so commonplace to us that we hardly bat an eyelash when we sin. We tell ourselves that since no one else is personally affected by what I'm doing, we really aren't doing any harm. We end up categorizing sin based on how widespread its effects are. And we make ourselves feel better if we've been able to contain our sin to the point where it is only affecting us. The problem with that is that there is no victimless sin. And no sin ever escapes God's record. We may forget how we've sinned. We may forget how often that we've sinned. But God keeps a record of it all. And we're told in the Bible that in the day of judgment, in Revelation 20 and verse number 12, it tells us that all the unsaved, will gather before Christ and will be accountable for all their sin. And it says in Revelation 20, verse 12, 
And this is speaking of the unbeliever's judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. There is only one possible way of escaping that judgment that is recorded for us in Revelation 20, where the record of every sin committed in your entire life will be presented to you and you'll be accountable for, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior who died on the cross and paid the full price of all your sin once and for all. That is the only escape from that. Otherwise, be prepared for God to bear before you the record of every sin that you've ever committed from the very first moment that you started sinning until you breathed your last breath. There is a record of it all. And if it's not cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, it is going to be brought before you in shame as you stand before Jesus at the great white throne and find out why you are eternally condemned into the lake of fire once and for all. Jesus Christ is the only answer to escape that, but there is a record of every sin. And third, we see that God recognizes different degrees of sin. God recognizes different degrees of sin. Right in the middle of verse number two, we have the phrase. It says, and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice this, he says, but not like his father and like his mother. It is true that sin is sin. One sin, no matter how bad it is, is an eternal offense against a holy God. Romans 6.23 tells us, it says, For the wages of sin is death. It doesn't matter if you stole a paperclip or if you massacred an entire village of women and children. One sin is enough to eternally condemn you to hell. The degrees of sin determine the level of suffering that the unsaved will endure in hell. And the Bible recognizes this fact. And we're told in Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29, it says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. In other words, there are plenty of people who don't understand that there's different degrees of sin and different degrees of punishment that are going to be suffering for different sins. There are plenty of people who ignore this truth and essentially throw caution to the wind regarding their sin. Uh, doesn't matter what it is. Some even seek to outdo the sin of others, thinking that they will build a name for themselves. If they're going to be condemned, they might as well build a name for themselves if they're going to end up in hell some way. Some people think that it makes no difference how much they sin or, or how bad they sin, thinking that if they're going to be condemned to hell, they might as well enjoy the pleasures of life here on earth in the grandest way possible. And Romans 2.5 describes this mentality. It says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, there's this mentality that people are basically giving themselves over to this and they're just building up and building up and building up and building up more wrath upon themselves in the day of judgment when that, when that day shall come. And then we're told in Hebrews 2 verse 2, it says, Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. There are different degrees of the punishment of sin. Now I want you to notice fourth, God knows when our reformation is genuine or disingenuous. 
Look at what we see in verse number two. It says, And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. This, as we will see, was more an act of deception or a partial reformation as a few years later, Baal worship would be completely restored in Israel. God's word was clear on this. In Exodus 23, verse 24, he said, Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. God was clear that sin must be dealt with swiftly and sternly. And when we repent of our sin, we must do everything to burn those bridges, leaving no possibility of us ever being tempted to return to such things that we were ever engaged in. Don't just hide something in a back closet of your home thinking that you'll never find it again, thinking that you'll never be tempted by it again. Get rid of it and get rid of it altogether. Get it out of your home. What's going to happen to the alcoholic who hides alcohol in the back of his fridge? He may not see it for days, but eventually as food is consumed and that fridge is getting emptier and emptier day by day, it will reveal the alcohol that was previously hidden from his eyes. True reformation requires a clean break from sin by removing the possibility of being tempted by these things once and for all. Get rid of it. Whatever is there in your life that is causing you to be tempted to sin, remove it. Even if it hurts, make the sacrifices that need to be made to remove the temptation from that sin altogether. God knows when your reformation is true and when it's not. And fifth, God notes our continuance to sin. God notes our continuance to sin. Look at verse number three again. It says, Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin, he departed not therefrom. He cleaved unto the sins and departed not therefrom. It is bad enough to engage in sinful activity. It's worse when it is done deliberately. Look at verses 4 and 5 here in 2 Kings chapter 3. It says, And Amisha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel on hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now the prophet Balaam had prophesied that David would conquer the Moabites. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse number 2, that is exactly what David did. He conquered the Moabites, and the Moabites at that point became David's servants. Moab stayed in this position. They were servants to Israel up until the days of the divided kingdom. But when Ahab died, as it tells us here in verse number 5, when he died, everything changed. They revolted, it says. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Proverbs 16, verse 7 tells us, it says, When a man's ways... Please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Even though the Moabites were servants to Israel, they were still living in peace with one another. That is, until God punished the sons of Ahab when they turned from the Lord and Moab was moved to rebel against Israel. And rather than going to the Lord for counsel during this time, we see the king of Israel, a man by the name of Jehoram, we see him 
seek counsel in all the wrong places. Look at what we see him do in verse number seven after this happened. It says, and he went, speaking of Jehoram, king of Israel, he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. For over 150 years, God had allowed the nation of Israel to see prosperity, allowed Moab to be their subjects. But Jehoram was not a believer and a follower of God, which is sad because he was literally reaping the blessings from God that he had benefited through David. Every day he's benefiting from this. Jehoram was guilty of doing what the prophet Jonah spoke of in Jonah chapter 2 and verse number 8. He says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Jehoram should have immediately turned to God at this time when Moab rebelled, but he had no confidence in God, neither in the priests of God, and it showed, or the prophets of God. It is sad how many people end up forsaking God from whom they are literally reaping the blessings from every single day. The very air that you are breathing into your lungs right now has been supplied to us by God. The fact that you're still alive right now, and check your pulse to make sure that you're still alive, but the fact that you still have a pulse is a testament to God's mercies and God's compassions, which are renewed every morning. It literally tells us in Lamentations that this is why we are not consumed. And yet people continue to live under the blanket of the mercy that God continues to provide every single day, acting as if they don't need God at all. Jehoram was literally reaping the benefits of having the Moabites under him under his rule and reign, a whole nation that are subject to him. For 150 years, they had been this way. And during the majority of his time, they're serving him until things fell apart and they rebelled. He made a mess of things, even though they were at peace together. Don't forsake the God who loves you enough to give you physical life here on earth with the opportunity to have everlasting life in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're alive right now, if you have a pulse, it is only because God has allowed you to be so. By all means, accept God's blessings, please. But also recognize that you need God every moment of every day. Don't think that you can receive from Him and then don't need Him to continue to bless you every single day. Many will mooch off of God's blessings, which are literally the things that are keeping them alive. And to their own eternal undoing, they will reject the idea that they need God at all to be in heaven one day. And this is what we see in Jehoram doing. But notice what he does next in verse number seven. Look at verse number seven again. It says, And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And the reason I said that Jehoram and him putting away the images of Baal, as it says earlier on, was deceptive and only a partial reformation is because I believe that he did this as a political stunt to ensure getting help from Jehoshaphat, as we see him doing in verse number 7. In fact, when these two men, and there's a third king that's actually going to come, the king of Edom, when these two men will eventually appear before the prophet Elisha, notice what happens. Because Elisha seems to indicate that Jehoram hasn't changed one bit. 
and is no different at all from his parents, even though it says of him in verse number two that he put away the image of Baal that his father had made, which he did. But I'm suggesting that he only put it in the back closet, that he didn't put it all the way away, destroying it so that it never resurrects again. Because notice what we see in verses 13 and 14, when Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, and Jehoram all appear to get counsel before Elisha. Notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. It says, And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, and that is Jehoram, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. Now if Jehoram was genuine in his reformation, Elisha would have said, well done. It's about time that you turned from the sins of your fathers, from the sins of your mothers, from the sin of Jeroboam, and are made an effort to get things right in Israel. Now I can look at you. Now we can talk. Now I can provide you the counsel that you need. But he says, listen, I don't even want to look at you. And were it not for Jehoshaphat, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. Because I know who you are. You are just like your father. You are just like your mother. You are just like Jeroboam, who was the first king of the divided kingdom. You are leading your nation of Israel to sin. And even though you may have put away the images of Baal, you haven't done a good enough job at that. Because they're going to be coming back into the limelight in just a few short years. So it seems to indicate that this is disingenuous as far as his reformation is concerned. Either way, Jehoshaphat, though, agrees to go with Jehoram to fight with Moab. Now, that was a lot of background information leading up to Elisha's fourth miracle. But as I said earlier, sometimes the background information is necessary to truly appreciate what the Lord would do through his servant. So I want you to notice second, as we looked at all the background, notice the urgency of the miracle. The urgency of the miracle. Look back at what it says in verses 8 through 10. So he's, Jehoram has already gotten the support of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat has said, listen, we are like you. You have my men. You have my horses. Let's go together and take care of this. Verse 8 says, and he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered. So Jehoram asked, which way shall we go up? Jehoshaphat answers, the way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. And they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So based on the fact that Jehoram was not seeking God's guidance, it was easy to see why he would give way to Jehoshaphat to be the one who leads. And he asked him, which way shall we go? And what we see is that they take the way through the wilderness to secure aid from the Edomites. However, this meant that they would have to contend with the wilderness. They'd have to contend with the desert where there is no water. Here you have three kings who have aligned together to fight the Moabites, but are in imminent danger of dying before they even make it to the battle. It's comical to me that Jehoram had no interest in seeking God's guidance as he was building this alliance 
But now he's recognizing that God is powerful enough to deliver three kings into the hands of one. Notice again what he says in verse number 10. So he hasn't gone to God at all. But now that they're without water and they're recognizing that we're probably all going to die out here before we even make it to battle the, the Moabites, it says in the king of Israel, which is Jehoram, it says, Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. All of a sudden, he's recognizing God and God's power. Now he's recognizing that God is powerful enough to do this. Does anyone else find it interesting how often unbelievers will blame God for troubling times, but offer God no praise at all in the good times? They rarely seek God's counsel when they feel like they're in need of help. Proverbs 19 verse 3 tells us, it says, The foolishness of man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord. If something good happens for the unbeliever, the expression is always, look what I was able to do. Would you see how my diligence, my work ethic, my strength, my ingenuity was able to accomplish all of this because I put my mind to do something and here are the rewards. If something bad happens, it's, why did God do this to me? What did I do to deserve this? You can't have it both ways, can you? You can't take credit for the good and then blame God for the bad. If something bad happens, it's not God's fault. Fortunately for Jehoram, Jehoshaphat had a decent head on his shoulders. Notice what happens in verses 11 and 12. It says, but Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? This is what should have been step one. It says, and one of the king of, king of Israel's servants answered and said, here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. What a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous in a time of desperation. Jehoram, as he expressed there in verse number 10, is tormented with what I believe is a guilty conscience and can only think of God's wrath. God has delivered us to kill us. He's brought us here and we're all going to die. And I believe he's coming from a guilty conscience, recognizing all of his sin, recognizing what he deserves because of who he is. And he's tormented by that. And the other, Jehoshaphat, continues to rest in God's mercy. Hold on a second. Is there a prophet of God that we can talk to and seek counsel from? So the urgency of the miracle. But notice third, the discrimination of the miracle. Now we've already looked at verses 13 and 14, but I want you to notice them again. It says, And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. There is both dignity and fidelity in Elisha's response to Jehoram here. When any normal person would have been flattered that the king is coming to him for help, Elisha actually considers this an insult, a slap in the face that Jehoram comes and consults him. Considering his true character, he says, I know who you are. I know that 
you're not genuine in any of these quote-unquote reforms. He knows what kind of man he is. And even though Jehoram may have other people fooled, he was not going to fool God's servant. And God instructed the prophet Ezekiel in the ways of discernment. In Ezekiel 14, verse 3, the Bible tells us, it says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? In other words, God is telling him, why would God be compelled to help those who have never felt the need for God in their lives before? Jehoram has made it clear that he doesn't care about God. He doesn't care for God. But when it's convenient and when he is hopelessly desperate, all of a sudden he needs God. Is God some last resort that we can ignore until we finally come to the end of ourselves and need help from the outside? Can God help? Of course he can. But he's also looking for those that are sincere. He's looking for those that are genuine and not just for those who are desperate, not just for those who are seeking an opportunity when it's convenient. Jehoram was des desperate because he thought he was going to die. And he reiterates that there in, in verse number 13. He says, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. We're desperate. We're done unless someone does something. He was so desperate because he thought he was going to die. Other than that, he didn't see his need for God. Many people do get to the end of themselves and realize that they can do nothing apart from God end up throwing themselves at the mercy of God, and many people get saved at that time. But that is not even what we're seeing here with Jehoram. That is why Elisha speaks to him the way that he does in verse 14, because if this were Jehoram and truly reformed and saying, I've done it wrong my entire life, i failed, and I'm just a miserable wretch. I'm coming to the end of myself, and I'm giving it all to God, and I'm throwing myself at the mercy of God. Please forgive me of the error of my way. That would have changed it. But notice again what it says in verse 14. It says, And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. Even in the most desperate situation, Jehoram still fails to see how much he owes to God and how blessed he is to be among someone else who believes in God. Jehoram would end up being blessed. But he's blessed by association in this instance. And notice, fourth, the requirement of the miracle. The requirement of the miracle. Look at what it says in verse number 15. So Elisha tells them. First he says, I'm not going to look at you. But you better thank Jehoshaphat for being here. Because if he wasn't here, this would never be happening. And he says, but now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now it is possible that Elisha's mind was frustrated, that he was irritated at the sight of Jehoram and by the bad behavior of what had previously happened with Elisha, with the children at Bethel. And therefore, it's possible he called for a minstrel to play music to calm his spirits, making him more susceptible and open to serve as God needed him to serve. And I can tell you that what often calms my troubled spirit is singing hymns of God. I don't know if any of you have found this familiar. Have you found this to be true in your life where maybe in times of trouble when you're at your wit's end that you're even reading the Bible and that doesn't seem to be helping all that much but you start singing 
a hymn that maybe starts settling your thoughts and your mind. There are times where I've reminded myself that even in all the craziness of life, that it is still well with my soul. Sometimes God will put a song on my heart with a scriptural message that is exactly what I needed to be reminded of. There's another reason, though. Another reason why the minstrel could have been called. In Psalm 98 and verse number 5, we read, it says, Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. And in 1 Chronicles 25 and verse number 3, it says, Jeduthun, who prophesied with the harp, to give thanks and praise to the Lord. It's possible that Elisha was shown regard to this order that seems to be established by, by God and yielding to such leading that music accompanies often God's prophetic word. Either way, the Lord honors those who honor him and see, we see this requirement before the miracle takes place. And notice fifth, the testing of the miracle. The testing of the miracle. Look at verses 16 and 17. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. The testing of the miracle. Now this was a pretty incredible test. They're told that they are not going to see everything necessary to produce water, and yet somehow water will appear. God was testing their faith and their obedience, and he's forcing them to put it all to the test through some very difficult manual labor. God was asking them, prepare for water. He's telling them that it's going to arrive in a way that they've never seen it arrive before. And isn't this the way that faith works? Isn't that the way that God works? Where God expects us to be obedient and to trust that he can do what needs to be done even if we look at the situation and deem it an impossibility. You're going to do what? You're not going to send a single rain cloud? You're not going to overflow the banks of another river to cause that water to be channeled over here? You're going to bring water from nowhere? None of that makes sense, logically. But this is the way that God works, even when it seems to be completely impossible. He expects us to continue in obedience and trust that he is going to do what needs to be done. What we would prefer is that God would often let us know how everything is going to be worked out. Lord, you want us to make this valley full of ditches. Tell me that you're going to send a whole bunch of rain clouds and bring rain like we've never seen it before. Or maybe it's been seen in the days of Noah. Maybe not that much, but a little bit. But let me know how it's going to happen because you're telling us to dig ditches, but you're telling us that it's going to be coming in a way that's never come before. What would you all think if you were put in this situation? If there was a more logical way that he was explaining it, we might think, oh yeah, that makes sense. I can see the rain clouds on the horizon, so if we hurry up with these ditches, the rain is going to come and it's going to fill up in these ditches. But he's telling us about something that hasn't happened before. So there's a huge test of obedience and faith that is needing to be demonstrated before the situation is taken care of. God doesn't work the same way every time, but that should never dictate how we respond to him and to his word. Our response to God should always be obedience 
and trust. God has never given us a reason to doubt him or his ways, even if we can't understand how he could possibly do anything under these present circumstances. When Jesus was preparing to feed the 5,000, do you remember that in John chapter 6? He only had five loaves and two fish. The disciples bring this little lad and they say, listen, this is all the food that we have, but this is nowhere near enough to feed the amount of people that we have here. You know what he says? He told the people, he told the disciples, have the people get ready for dinner. Did you hear what we said, Jesus? It wasn't 500 loaves and 200 fish. It was five loaves, five. I can count on one hand how many and two fish. There are not enough food to feed this great multitude of people. Start passing out the plates. Give the people some forks. Have them sit down. None of this makes sense. None of it makes sense. But we read on in that story in John chapter 6, and everyone starved, right? Right? No! Miraculously, as God took the food, Jesus, he broke it and he blessed it and he gave thanks for it. All of a sudden, everyone is eating to their heart's content. And how many baskets of leftovers were there? Twelve! They had more leftovers than what they had to begin with. How does that even happen? Other than by the miraculous hand of a God who can do anything. There is no limit to what he can do. Jesus was testing their faith, the disciples' faith, get the people ready to eat to see if they would be obedient to him even if they didn't understand his methods. In other words, if you're expecting God's blessings, make room for them. Right? If you're expecting God to work, make room for him to work. Step out of the way. Let him do what he needs to do. Don't just be negligent. Don't just be lazy. Keep working. Keep obediently doing what you need to do. But make room for God to bless. The testing of the miracle. And notice sixth, the meaning of the miracle. The meaning of the miracle. What you have in this miracle is really a foreshadowing of the gospel going forth into all the nations. When you read throughout the life of Christ, you see that Christ spent the majority of his ministry in the land of Israel. There were a handful of times when he went beyond the borders of Israel and he, he, he ventured to different places and he explains the reason why in one of these instances. When a woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon approached Jesus to heal her daughter, Jesus responded to her this way in Matthew 15 and verse number 24. He said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Jesus sent forth his apostles in Matthew chapter 10, he instructed them in verses 5 and 6, he says, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into the, any of the city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It wasn't until after Christ's resurrection that he instructed his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to everyone. What's interesting about this encounter all the way back here in 2 Kings chapter 3 is that it was solely for the presence of Jehoshaphat that this miracle ever happened in the first place. But the water was made available for not just the Israelites, but for also the third king and his army who was there. Jehoram, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and then you have the Edomites that were there as well. 
And they were blessed and benefited from this great miracle. God didn't send his only begotten son to die on the cross for the sins of only a certain group of people. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. And as servants of God, as believers, it is not up to us to decide who we are going to minister to and who we're going to share the gospel with. We are simply called to do one simple thing, and that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And notice, finally, seventh, the timing of the miracle. Look at verse number 20. The timing of the miracle. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Do you think it was a coincidence that water appeared at the specific time, it says, that offerings were being made and God was being worshipped in the temple at Jerusalem? Again, it says, it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered. Do you think this was a coincidence? God was showing this company of men that their deliverance was guaranteed on the grounds of obedience that was shown to the sacrifice that was made by those that were faithful in Jerusalem. Today, deliverance is guaranteed on the grounds of obedience to the sacrifice that is made through Jesus Christ alone. God delivered just as he said he would. Here in 2 Kings 3, through the prophet Elisha, God still delivers today through the message of the gospel that salvation comes freely through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid the penalty of all of our sin. There is no greater message than we as believers can give to an unbelieving world than for them to know that their spiritually dead situation can be offered life-giving water through faith in Jesus Christ. They may not understand how it comes to them. They may not understand why it comes. But if they understand that they're in need of a Savior, this is the blessing that we're told, that God saves all those who call upon Him. It may be something that they're not used to hearing. It may stretch beyond what they've come to believe in the world to be logical and to be reasoning but it is the only means of salvation that is through faith in Jesus Christ and our job as believers is to recognize that as servants of God we are to be servants to everyone for God is not willing that any should perish God is desiring that all men come to him so love God love people and be the light that always shows the world that there is a savior who loves them and a Savior who desires that they be with him forever in heaven one day. If there's a message that we take, it's that. As we see this message coming to everyone that was there. The Jews as well as the Edomites who benefited from the water that was offered. Be a servant to all. Be an a understanding and a willing vessel in the hands of the master. To be a blessing to the people that God has placed in your life. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you, Lord, for the lesson that we've learned here in this instance from the life of Elisha. Lord, how you used Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, the king, of, the king of Edom as well. And Lord, what a blessing it must have been that day, a memorable day, Lord, for them to see just how you can work in the most desperate and just impossible situations. Lord, I pray that as we strive to be a servant for you, Lord, that we would follow you in every endeavor, wherever it is that you lead us, trusting, Lord, that you're the one that is guiding us and you're the one that we, meet, that we must be obeying. Lord, for when we're in the center of your will, there's no better place for us to be. Lord, for we are doing as you called us to do and finding favor in your sight. Thank you for all that you've done. 
Lord, may we honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.